everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on Thursday, June 20th, 2019. Kicking off the show, Reptile, by the uh, very underrated, in my opinion, uh, alternative band out of Australia, The Church. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to. We have Major League Baseball, including uh, the latest... uh, (laughs) Uh, fiasco, if you will, uh, in New York Metland. We will take a stroll around Major League Baseball as well and talk about some teams that actually know what they're doing. Uh, And we'll take a look ahead at tonight's NBA draft. We'll take a look back briefly at uh, the NBA Finals since uh, it's been a while since we did uh, a show. We were off last week, had uh, some other uh, commitments pop up. But we're back today. And we start with the, uh, the sinking ship, the disaster, the laughing stock that is the New York Metropolitan's Baseball Club. So um, for those of you not paying attention, the Mets are now, let's go to the standings, in fourth place um, behind the Nationals. Um, they are four games under 500 at 35 and 39. So almost halfway through the season now. They've played, uh, what, 74 games, right? Nine and five is, uh, let me see if I can do my math. 70, yeah, 74 games. So another seven games will get them to the halfway point. So, you know, almost half the season in the books. The Mets are in fourth place, as close to last place as they are to first place. A run differential of minus 25. Worst bullpen in baseball. Players playing out of position all over the place. This has been a constant theme now. This was a constant theme during the seven or eight years Sandy Alderson was here. And it's been a constant theme under the Brody Van Wagenen regime. Um, and look, Mickey Cowley seems like a nice enough guy. Uh, the, the dude is just clearly overmatched. I mean, he just is. He's not a big league manager, certainly not in New York. Um, and look, it's not all his fault. Never is. Uh, this is a, an ill-conceived roster, and that falls squarely on BVW's shoulders. Mr. Come Get Us. I mean, this idiot had, I mean, uh, you know, all right, I should stop with the name calling, but Brody Van Wagenen, I mean, the fact that he had the audacity to say, come get us, you know, in the offseason after his, you know, all these brilliant moves, I guess, he thought he had made. And we'll get to each of those in a second and how fairly awful all of them have been so far. Um, so, you know, you're going to stand out there again. This is an agent. Guy's never been a general manager, never been part of a front office, a former agent. We've talked about it ad nauseum with the conflicts of interests, with former clients littering the Mets roster. This is Jeff Wilpon's golfing buddy. I thought it was a horrendous decision at the time. People said, oh, let's think, you know, come on, give it a chance. Think outside the box. Look, all I needed to hear was Jeff Wilpon's idea. That's it. That's all I needed to hear. Jeff Wilpon is a disaster. You know, there's all. Look, go read Pedro Martinez's book. There's an excerpt there from when I think in 05, when the Mets were were done. You know, they, they got back to respectability. Remember after the whole Art How uh, 
fiasco. Right? The Mets finally hired somebody with some gravitas in Willie Randolph, right? Somebody who'd come from a winning organization like the Yankees, a guy who had bided his time as an assistant coach in baseball for a number of years, a dignified person, right? Guy who was a very good major league player. And uh, the Mets hired him and they got back to respectability in 05, right? They signed Beltron and uh, Pedro. And, you know, that was when I think, uh, oh, who was their closer? Oh, why is it going to drive me nuts? I remember he blew the opening game. Pedro pitched well. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Guy threw Brandon. Oh, geez. Brandon Lowe? Oh, no, it wasn't Brandon Lowe. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll look it up in a second. But um, blew the first game. But anyway, that's, not, that's besides the point. The point is Pedro wrote in his book about how at the end of the year, Willie told him, I was shutting you down. He had that, remember, he had that toe issue from the way he used to land. Um, and uh, But then the Mets were playing, I forget who they were. Oh, they were playing the Marlins. And Dontrell Willis was pitching for the Marlins. And he was a young, you know, up-and-coming young star at the time. You know, his career flamed out famously or infamously. And um, apparently Jeff Wilpon went to Pedro and said, you know, what, what, what are you, you, you're pitching today. And Pedro's like, no, I'm not. I, I, Willie told me they're shutting me down. You know, my toe's been barking and we're out of the playoff race. So, And Jeff Wilpon said, well, we pay your salary, you're pitching. We, we want you to pitch because, we, 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 you know, we're, we're, the Mets were hyping the game as, you know, Dontrell Willis versus Pedro Martinez. And Pedro said, fine, I'll, I'll opt out on my contract or, you, don't, you know, I'll forfeit the rest of my contract and I'll go be a free agent. Uh, and basically got into, a, you know, a pissing match with Jeff Wilpon. But, I mean, that's just one example of that. that that's all, and, you know, Jeff Wilpon went behind the manager's back, went around the general manager, Omar, Omar Minai at the time, went right to the player and because what's Jeff Wilpon interested in? Making money. Not interested in winning. Trying to make money. That's it. Again, Jeff Wilpon is the worst of all things when it, comes to the, when it comes to being an owner, which is he got where he is because of his father. He didn't earn a thing along the way. Oh, and he also thinks he knows a lot more than he does because I think he played minor league baseball for four seconds, which is also likely the result of the fact that his father was a major league owner. Um, you know, Nelson Doubleday, who, as I pointed out, time and time again, after the Mets bought him out, the Wilpons bought him out, they basically, you know, I guess made him an offer he couldn't refuse and wanted him gone in 2002. He basically said, head for the hills, boys. What he learned that Jeff Wilpon was going to be groomed as the next COO of the Mets. Nelson Doubleday, I think, knew a little bit about baseball. Remember, the Wilpons didn't want to trade for Mike Piazza. Nelson Doubleday begged and pleaded and demanded that they trade for Mike Piazza in 1997. Remember, the Wilpons' reasoning was, well, we already have a catcher in Todd Hundley, except he was on the disabled list with a torn-up elbow and would never play catcher again, really. So Wilpons, so they hired an agent to be the general manager, After Major League Baseball forced Sandy Alderson on them after the whole Madoff scandal. And look, again, Sandy Alderson, nice guy. He's had some success in, in the sport. Did a terrible job with the Mets. Terrible. 
But again, I wonder, can anyone really be successful under these owners? And, and now particularly Jeff, now that he's the one that has the, the, the main voice. So the Mets' big move today, folks, not fire the manager. We're going to fire the pitching coach, Dave Island. And we're going to insert 82-year-old, you heard me correctly, 82-year-old Phil Regan. He, of, I believe, managed the Orioles for, for a time. Um, but the feeling around the Mets was that Dave Island was too old school. But so you're going to hire an 82-year-old guy. And look, I'm not against hiring an 82-year-old guy. The guy is qualified and competent. But the, the, the reasoning seems odd that Dave Island was fired because he's too old school. So then you insert an 82-year-old guy? He's not going to be old school? <laughs> what? I mean, again, it's the Mets. It's the Mets, folks. You can't even the stuff writes itself. You can't even make, you can't make this stuff up. So, I mean, look, last night's game perfectly encapsulated everything that is wrong with the Mets. Okay? So, Mets are down 2-1. Mats, of course, gives up a first inning two-run homer to Freddie Freeman. Nothing new there. Freddie Freeman absolutely kills the Mets. But then Mats settled in from there, kept the team in the game. Mets get a run back. Uh, I think... Oh, no, no. They got a run in the first inning on a Conforto ground out. Right. McNeil led off with a double, stole third. Conforto got him in with a ground out. So the Mets are down 2-1. Top of the fourth. Uh, Wilson Ramos hits a two-out double. And then Rosario hits a two-out double. Kind of a line drive right at the center fielder. Misjudged it. It was a bit of a rising liner. So he kind of froze. Ball got over his head. Ramos scores easily. It's two outs now. Rosario idiotically tries to go to third base. Is out by a mile. Makes a third out of third. That used to be a cardinal sin in baseball. You never make the first or third out of third base. It's very simple. Why? Because if you're on second base with two outs, you're scoring on a base hit anyway. You can't score on an out from third. Particularly somebody with Rosario's speed. He's scoring on any base hit to the outfield with two outs. And you never make the first out of third either because if you're at second with no outs, you can still score on two outs. You can score on a ground ball or second base and a fly ball or ground ball, depending on if the team brings the infield in or not. It's very simple. This is simple stuff. It's not debatable. Okay, I don't care what all the analytics nerds like to say now. It's not debatable. You don't make the third out at third base. Ahmed Rosario's been in the league for three years now. He should know this. So that thwarted a potential two-out rally. Yes, it tied the game, but you just handed the Braves an out for no reason. Then the next inning, Mets have two runners on. Ramos is up, one out. Base hit to shallow right field. Right fielder playing shallow to begin with because Ramos goes to right field all the time. J.D. Davis on second base, who Ron Darling, God bless him, pointed out before the hit, J.D. Davis was not getting nearly a big enough lead off second base. It had a terrible secondary lead. 
Nothing new there. The Mets the worst base running team in baseball. So the third base coach, Gary DiSarcino, who is keeping alive the tradition, the recent tradition of atrocious Mets third base coaches. I think the last time the Mets had a good third base coach was maybe Sam Perlazzo. <laughs> Buddy Harrelson. Uh... J.D. Davis, who's not fast to begin with, on second base. DeSarcina sends him home. He's out by 10 feet. Tried to jump over the catcher. It was actually a pretty athletic move by Davis. I give him credit. It's not his fault. It's third base coach's fault. You don't send him there in a 2-2 game. You keep the bases loaded with one out. Now Rosario's coming up, who had just mashed a double in his prior at-bat. Yes, he made an idiotic base running mistake. But Rosario's been one of the Mets' best hitters with runners in scoring position this year. Now you've got the other pitcher on the ropes. You've got bases loaded, one out, a guy who just smoked a double off him his last at-bat. But instead, now you've got first and second and two outs, and you just thwarted a rally for no reason. And then after the game, DeSarcina has the nerve to say, oh, I, I, I do that 100 out of 100 times. Well, you know, 100, 100, 100 times, you should not be the third base coach anymore then. How about that? You want to keep him as the infield instructor, although Amar Rosario is supposed to be his, pro, his pet project, has been atrocious defensively this year. He's got the Kazmat Sui disease. He can't make plays to his backhand somehow. Only the Mets, by the way, would have two shortstops in the last 20 years, neither of whom are comfortable going into the hole and making a play with the backhand. It's almost unthinkable, except with the Mets. Then it's pretty much common par for the course. <laughs> and of course Callaway defended the third base coach too now look the Callaway piece I get I guess you don't want to throw your coaches under the bus although I guess he's fine with Dave Island getting fired today though isn't he because he didn't because he didn't pound the table to keep Dave Island did he so after that the game is 2-2 match comes out now it's bottom of the that was sorry. That was top of the fifth. So now, yeah, now it's bottom of the fifth. No, no, that was top of the sixth. So now it's bottom of the sixth. Matt's had gone five innings, two runs so far. He's done a pretty good job. Top of the sixth inning. Freeman leads off. It's a pop up. That's an out. 99 out of 100 times to left field, except the Mets are playing J.D. Davis, who's a third baseman or a first baseman, and not an outfielder in left field. And because he's not an outfielder, he's playing so ridiculously deep that a ball that should be a can of corn drops in for a hit. And you saw Mats on the mound react. And look, I, you can make the argument that he shouldn't show any emotion on the mound. Sorry, that's just who he is. And he was just so... Uh, he looked so beaten down after that ball fell. It was almost like he knew that what was coming, which, of course, the next batter hit a two-run homer. <laughs> now, you could sit there and say, look, Stephen Matt should get a double play, you know, pick your, your fielders up. Uh, okay, and look, I'm not even blaming J.D. Davis. The, idea, the point is that J.D. Davis should not be starting in left field. He cost the Mets a game against the Yankees by playing starting in left field. And left field, the Yankee Stadium is a much harder left field to play because there's a ton of room out there. The game that Wheeler pitched. So, you know, of course, then the Braves did their thing. I mean, but it was all so predictable. I mean, none of it surprised me. I didn't get angry. I didn't get emotional. It's, it's, it's par for the course with the Mets. 
I mean, you've got Michael Conforto playing right field. He's not a right fielder. He's a, ter- he's a terrible right fielder. He's adequate in left. He's not a right fielder. J.D. Davis is not a left fielder. Dominic Smith, not a left fielder. I mean, look, God love Dominic Smith. He's had a phenomenal year this year. He's bounced back. Looked like he, is, he had no place in this organization after a disastrous season last year. Right? Overweight, underperformed, late for the first meeting in spring training. The whole thing... Right? Didn't look good when he got called up the year before. Got his job taken away, essentially. Not his job, but got beat out for the job by Alonzo. He's done nothing but be a great teammate and support him, and they've forged a very good friendship. He's been great off the bench. He's hit. He's been tremendous, and he's got a pretty good glove at first. I understand that you want to get his bat in the lineup. He's not a left fielder. The Mets have nothing but corner infielders on this team. It's such an ill-conceived roster. It's a joke. And then the one guy that can play center field, Juan Lagares, can't hit at all. Can't hit. And he's not as good as he used to be defensively because he doesn't throw as well as he used to after the arm injury. And now he plays a lot deeper than he used to. He used to play very shallow and cut off a lot of balls because he was great at going back on balls. I mean, look, he still has made some very good plays this year and some above-average plays. And he's still an above-average glove. But you can't... He's not good enough to carry his poor offense. And, you know, Carlos Gomez is up here. I mean, he's a spare part. He's not really a center fielder anymore. You know, I understand the Nimmo injury hurts a little bit. Okay. But Jeff McNeil's also not a left fielder. He's a second baseman. And he's a pretty good second baseman. But he can't play second base. Why? Oh, because of Robinson Cano. And let's get to that. Let's get to the trade, the signature move by Brody Van Wagenen in the offseason that has basically doomed the Mets from the start. And that was trading Jared Kelenic, their first-round pick last year outfielder, and Justin Dunn, who was a first-round pick a few years back from B.C., uh, right-handed pitcher with a power arm who was in double-A last year and pitched pretty well. And then Jay Bruce and Anthony Swarzak, basically salary dumps for Robinson Cano, and Edwin Diaz, the closer. Robinson Cano, 36 years old, coming off a PED suspension, only played 80 games last year because of that, with four more years left on his contract. Four. To play second base. When the whole world said, doesn't nearly have the range he used to. And who knows? Look, yeah, he hit 300 last year. Um... He got popped for PEDs. I mean, plus he's 36. Guys don't get better as they get older. They get worse, especially now. The Major League Baseball actually drug tests. And so you're trying to build your team around pitching, but so then you import an over-the-hill second baseman who doesn't have range. You knew there was a possibility you were going to have Alonzo at first base, who, by the way, has been fine with the glove. I understand he made an error the other night. Whatever. Errors are going to happen. He's actually been perfectly fine defensively, and his offense is through the roof. So you live with whatever shortcomings he might have defensively. Cano hasn't hit at all. He has four home runs and 14 RPIs. He has an OPS under 700. He's been atrocious. And you can tell he's done. You know how you can tell he's done? Because he's not walking at all. Because his his pitch recognition is shot. He's swinging pitches out of the strike zone right and left because he's trying to get his bat started earlier because his bat speed is gone. He's shot. 
Then you add in the fact that he's a lazy bum who takes his sweet time running to first base, and it's a horrendous look. Horrendous. So that trade has had such a ripple effect negatively on the Mets. Think about it. So you've got McNeil off position now playing the outfield. You've got Cano playing second base, not hitting. And by the way, the Mets bat him third. They insist on hitting him third, even though he's not even remotely anything close to a third-place hitter anymore. Early in the year, when McNeil should have been hitting third and Nimmo should have been hitting leadoff, we had Cano hitting third, McNeil hitting leadoff, and Nimmo batting like seventh, where he's completely useless. That's Mickey Calloway's special, by the way. No idea how to, how to uh, devise a lineup that makes sense. And because they traded for the closer, who they thought was great, they kind of, you know, yes, they signed Familia. Unfortunately, Familia has been awful. And I'll be fair. I didn't think the Familia signing was a bad move. He had a decent year last year. Pitched pretty well for the Mets and, and p- pitched pretty well as a setup guy for Oakland last year. And obviously the guys had success with the Mets, so you didn't think it'd be a big stretch for him to come back here and be successful. He's been awful. Meanwhile, of course, Jay Bruce has been great for the Phillies after the Mariners traded him in the Phillies and Swarzak, of course, shutting the Mets down last night after he got traded from the Mariners to the Braves. I mean, it's just classic. It's just classic. Swarzak couldn't get anybody out last year for the Mets. He was atrocious. Yes, he was hurt also. Okay. And isn't it interesting? Guys that, you know, leave the Mets and go on and have success other places... Now, look, Jay Bruce has been a solid major league player everywhere, and it had one very good year for the Mets. But, you know, look at at Hansel Robles, who had some success as a setup guy for the Mets, then things got away from him, and now he's closing for the Angels and doing a pretty good job. Travis Darno somehow is playing for the Rays, who have, like, you know, yes, I understand they just got swept by the Yankees. The Rays are, what, 15 games over 500? Couldn't play for the Mets. Playing for the Rays, yeah. They're 12 games over, 43 and 31. Fit a little rough patch here. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, there's such a toxic losing culture that pervades everything that goes on with the Mets. So let's look at Van Wagenen's move so far this offseason. The Cano trade is atrocious. Atrocious. Because Cano gums up the works on many, many levels. You've got signing Familia. He's been a, a bust. He has, he has a 7 ERA. And now he's on the disabled list for the second time this year. Justin Wilson, two years, $10 million. Uh, he's been pretty much hurt all year. Pitched a little bit. Was, you know, so-so. But he's been pretty much hurt all year. Jed Lowry hasn't played a game. Hurt all year. Wilson Ramos has been okay with the bat. He's on pace to have about 15, 16 home runs, about 90 RBIs, which you would take all day long from a catcher, except his defense has been terrible. And then he traded for Keon Broxton. That move was so bad that they got rid of him and the Orioles got, uh, took him. And I think he was doing pretty well with the Orioles, actually. 
But, you know, the, the Mets never played him, again, because of Robinson Cano. Because instead of playing McNeil at second base and Broxton getting some, some at least somewhat regular reps in the outfield, Broxton never played, never got any at-bats. So he sat around collecting dust, and then the few times he did get a shot, he wasn't successful. Gee, what a surprise. I mean, Broxton should have been playing center field or left field. If you wanted to go super defense, you play, you know, Conforto and left, Broxton and right, and at the time, you know, or no, you would have played Broxton and center because he's a very good defensive player. Conforto and left and Nimmo and right. That should have been your outfield from time to time. And then Lagares can come in, you know, and play defense for Nimmo. You can move, you know, Broxton over. You can move, uh, put Lagares in right field late in games for defense with it, and when you have a lead. The only move that's borne any fruit has been the J.D. Davis move because he can hit, but he's, a, he, but he's really a D.H. He's not a good National League player. Again, he's by trade, he's an infielder. He's a third baseman and a first baseman. And the Mets won't play him at third base because of Todd Frazier. Ooh, the great Todd Frazier. Now look, Todd Frazier can field. I will say that. And he is hit much better than he did in the beginning of the year. Listen, maybe, hopefully, someone will take him at the trade deadline. I mean, if he can keep his average around 240, 250 and hit a few more, few more home runs here, but by the trade deadline, maybe somebody will take him off the Mets' hands. But, I mean, there, there, there's no reason for Todd Frazier to be playing on this team anymore. None. None. And, I mean, and he's not a good hitter. I mean, he's not who, the guy you want up in a, in a big spot. He's a mistake hitter. He's got a horrendous swing. He swings at everything. Half his hits are, are dumb luck. And, you know, Davis doesn't look like he's got such a bad glove. He has throwing issues, which should be able to be fixed. Because he's got a good arm. He just, he's got a hitch. So he, he taps the glove twice, like David Wright used to do late in his career. That's something that should be fixed. But it, it, his glove seems fine. I mean, he might not have the most range, but it's not like he's a butcher over there. Balls are bouncing all clanging off his glove right and left. So you're subpar defensively at catcher. You're subpar defensively at second base when Cano plays. Rosario's had a horrible year defensively. Subpar shortstop. And a lot of times you're subpar in center field. So the old axiom, I guess, of being strong defensively up the middle, I guess the Mets completely ignore that, huh? And then they wonder why the pitching staff's underperforming. You see, because there's a lot of balls that get scored as hits that really shouldn't be hits. And it has a cumulative effect, right? Because now that's an extra bet where you should have an out. You've got an, and, and it doesn't count against the ERA, but you know, it, all, it all adds up. Because now you've got extra batters you've got to face, extra pitches you have to throw. We know in today's baseball where pitch counts are you know, scrutinized heavily, right? And the guy gets 110, 115 pitches, and you've got to get him out of there, right? And then you've got to use your bullpen more. I mean, it all contributes. I mean, the fact that the Mets are literally, I believe by all the defensive metrics too, the Mets are the worst fielding team in Major League Baseball. They have the most errors for sure. And again, that's not even counting all the hometown gifts that the, that, that the, the, the hometown official scores when the Mets are on the road give hits to the opposing team. 
And then again, like last night, Freddie Freeman's base hit to left field. That's a ball that's got to be caught. And and, and again, but they but they're going to fire Dave Island. He's the problem. I mean, are you out of your minds? I mean, if you're going to fire the pitching coach, then fire the manager too. He's a former pitching coach, supposed to be his forte, pitching. I mean, again, look, it's not all Mickey Callaway's fault. He's clearly overmatched, but this is a wretched roster that Brody Van Wagenen has assembled. It's awful. It's nothing but DHs and first basemen. I mean, it's a joke. I mean, Robinson Cano is a DH at this point in his career. If he could hit, but he can't even hit. J.D. Davis is a DH. Dom Smith is a DH, or is your first baseman, and Alonzo's a DH. Rosario, by the way, if the Mets had any vision and were smart, they'd either move him to third base, which I think he would be probably pretty good at because he's got a good arm, or center field because the Mets have a glaring hole in center field because he's got the athleticism, and again, he's got the arm. Now, I don't know if he can do it, but they should think about it. I mean, you watch Denny Echevarria play shortstop when, when, when Rosario gets a day off here or there, gets double switched out of the game. I mean, he's a thousand times better than Rosario in the field. It's just no contest. I mean, Rosario's had all kinds of issues this year. I mean, he had that one stretch where he made like seven errors in ten games. Then he's had all kinds of issues where he, 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 he's blowing double plays because he can't get his foot down on the bag. You know, again, he has to run around ground balls into the hole because he can't field to the backhand side somehow as a major leaguer. I mean, it's unbelievable. He very rarely ever seems to be positioned properly. Well, that's probably more of a Mets coaching staff issue than anything else. I mean, it's just... It's, it's a mess. I mean, the Mets are an absolute mess. The only reason to watch this team right now, McNeil, Alonzo, DeGrom. That's it. That's it. Rosario, okay. Maybe Conforto. But I'll tell you, Michael Conforto's quickly turning into a left-handed Kevin McReynolds. I mean, talk about down 7-1. Nope, there's a home run from uh, Conforto. Or up 6 nothing in the eighth inning. Three-run homer from Conforto. I mean, talk about window dressing, meaningless statistics. And again, not his fault, but he's an atrocious right fielder. Shouldn't be playing right field, but he's terrible out there. Terrible. Another one's a bad base runner. Seems out to lunch half the time. If I were the Mets, I would trade him and Rosario for Francisco Lindor, the shortstop from the uh, from the Indians. See if they maybe throw Brad Hand in their closer too. Maybe even get one of their uh, one of their underperforming starters like Carrasco. I mean, the Mets need a complete overhaul. Again, the guys you're going to keep: McNeil, Alonzo, Degrom. That's it. I mean, literally everybody else should be on the table, up for discussion. Everybody else, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the veterans is a no-brainer, right? I mean, if the Mets, by the way, also had any stones, they would figure out a buyout with Cano and just get him the hell out of here. I mean, again, he is the absolute worst 
There is nothing worse than watching a bad team that has an aging veteran blocking other guys from playing who also doesn't hustle and has a laissez-faire attitude. It is the worst look possible. And look, I get it. I understand Robbie Dino is a great guy and all the players love him and blah, 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 and you don't see all the work he puts in behind the scenes. I don't give a rat's ass. I really don't. I don't care. Okay? I don't care. Yes, you could live with his laissez-faire attitude if he was hitting 330 and driving in 100 runs. He's not that player anymore. And only the Mets are shocked by this, by the way. The whole world knew this was the dumbest trade ever. The Mariners were desperate to get rid of him. That's why they were willing to include their closer. But the Mariners also knew they weren't going to be any good this year, so having a good closer didn't do them any good either. It was irrelevant. You didn't have to include... I mean, look, if the Mets would have done that trade without including the minor leaguers, okay, you live with it. Salary dump, salary dump. You see, you know, okay, one veteran making a lot of money for another one. All right. Not the end of the world. Plus, you get a closer in here. Yes, the guy had a great year last year. He was okay the year before. You know, not much of a track record, Diaz. He's only 24. And Diaz has been bad. I mean, let's just be honest. He's been bad. He has three blown saves, and he blew two, and he's lost two games where the Mets were tied in the ninth inning. That's, that's five losses. Mets are five games under 500. I'm sorry. Now, again, I've said all along, I did not expect him to have the same level of success he had last year in Seattle. It's unsustainable. His numbers were off the charts. He had a, a whip under nine, 57 saves. That wasn't happening this year. But he expected a, ra- a whip of around maybe one, one, you know, a little over one, and 40-something saves. It's nowhere close to that this year. He's been terrible. And look, I give the guy credit. He stands at his locker. He takes all the questions, doesn't make excuses. And you can see the guy has stuff. I mean, stuff is not the issue. But I mean, literally, all of Van Wagenen's moves, except for J.D. Davis, and only because he's hit, again, he's not a good fit for a National League team, they've all been terrible. Terrible. And, and the lack of attention to detail that exists, I understand it's a bit of an epidemic around across Major League Baseball. I mean, I have seen. I mean, the Yankees, in the, in the two games the Mets played the Yankees, I mean, that one game the Yankees looked atrocious also in many respects. Very sloppy. It's all over Major League Baseball. I get it. Nobody knows how to run the bases anymore. Guys miss cutoff men all the time, except for teams like Tampa Bay, by the way, which is how they win without big-name stars because they do all the little things right. But that's no excuse for the Mets. Just because everybody else is doing it, is that, that's your excuse? That's ridiculous. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll come back, take a stroll around Major League Baseball right after this. Okay, so we're back here on Jamal About Sports doing a little stroll through Major League Baseball. So as we just finished up, sorry, 35 minutes on the stupid Mets, let's go to the complete opposite of the Mets. The New York Yankees at 19 games over 500, 46 and 27, without Stanton, which whatever, but without Judge, without Didi for a good portion of the year, without Severino, without Patances, and all the Yankees do is win. CC got his 250th win career yesterday. Congratulations to him. 
Sorry, not a Hall of Famer. Sorry, it's not. Really, really good pitcher. Hell of a career, a gamer. I'm a CC Sabathia fan. What he did for Milwaukee that year when he got traded at the deadline in 08 was spectacular with the three complete games down the stretch. Basically put that team on his back and got them into the playoffs. Guy's been a gamer his whole career. Doesn't make excuses when he's bad. He stands there and tells you he was bad. Great teammate. Great pitcher. Not a Hall of Famer. He's not. Or if you're going to put him in the Hall of Fame, you damn well better put Jim Cott in the Hall of Fame with his 280-something wins and 15 gold gloves or whatever it was. I mean, the Yankees, look, they just had a great series against Tampa Bay, swept them. Now they're three and a half up on Tampa. And it's, you know, reinforcements on the way. I think Judge will be back soon. Stanton came back the other night. Severino still may come back late in the year. Now, you know, the question with the Yankees, as always, is the starting rotation. I mean, it's been, you know, they, you know, Sabathia threw a great game yesterday. Tanaka threw a great game the game before. Their next starts, they might not be so good. That's kind of who they both are at this point in their career. Tanaka a little bit better than Sabathia, but you get the gist. You know, Jay Happ, eh, he's okay. He's fine. Fourth, fifth starter type is fine. Paxton, he's been okay, not great. You know, guy's only thrown. The most innings he's ever thrown in a year is 160-something. So, yes, while at times he looks dominant and has great stuff, hardly a sure thing. You'd expect the Yankees make a trade by the deadline, if not sooner, for a more proven commodity starting pitcher-wise. I think Stroman is the guy that makes a ton of sense. Marcus Stroman from the Blue Jays, right? He's from here. He's feisty. He's a competitor. He fit right in with the Yankees winning culture. You get him the hell out of dreary Toronto, who hasn't you know, won, won more than 70 games the last four years. I think he'd be perfect there. He's young, still under control. Makes a ton of sense. Red Sox have kind of righted the ship. They had a brutal loss in 17 innings the other night to Minnesota, but they're six games over 500 now. Given where they were to start the year, pretty good. And they're only six, uh, six and a half out behind the Yankees. As I said two weeks ago, Red Sox are not dead by a long shot. And then, you know, bringing up the rear Tampa Bay and Baltimore, two atrocious baseball teams. Minnesota, 48-25, and 25, best record in the American League. Best record in, no, Dodgers are the best at 50 and 25. We'll get to them in a second. But the Twins continue to pound the baseball. They're a plus 110 run differential. Indians have kind of righted the ship. They're five games over 500 now. So they're back in the mix for a wild card, even though we still have half a season to go. And then, you know, give the White Sox credit. They're, all, they're two games under 500, but they have. Uh, they're, they're starting to be competitive. They're, they're getting to be one of those teams that if you got to play them late in the year and you're trying to make the, the playoffs, one of those teams you don't want to play. They'd be a thorn in your side. You know, Lucas Giolito, the, the, the Harvard-Westlake kid um, that they got, I think, in the sale trade. No, they got him in the... They got him in that trade with the Nationals. 
Um, he's been really his last start. He was bad, but other than, before that, he was really good. He was ten and two with a two something ERA. Moncada, who they got in the sale trade, is starting to hit. They moved him from second to third. He's really hitting. Abreu's always hit for them. Elroy Jimenez is hitting. The Cuban kid that they signed. Tim Anderson, the shortstop, is having a, a monster year. They're 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 pay, they got a good closer in Colomay. They're they're a pain in the neck. They're pesky. And then the Tigers and the Royals, not worth mentioning. Twenty six and forty four for Detroit. Twenty five and forty nine for Kansas City. Twenty six and forty eight for Toronto. Twenty one and fifty three for Baltimore. And then in the AL West, Astros forty eight and twenty seven. Again, still like the cream, look like the cream of the crop in the American League. I mean, you know, what the Twins are doing is great. Astros look like, you know, they still have Verlander, Garrett Cole. Osuna now is the closer. Presley setting him up. Great lineup up and down. They still, they've had some injuries. They still overcome them. They have good depth. Rangers actually give them credit, too. They, they've played them, themselves back in the wild card mix at 39 and 35. Oakland, 39 and 36. Anaheim, 38 and, no, sorry, the Orange County Angels, 38 and 37. With Mike Trout, the best player in baseball, is basically his career is being wasted out there. And then Mariners at 32 and 46. Total, you know, not, not any good. And at least just talking about the Braves, I mean, the Braves have been red hot lately. They're 8 and 2 in their last 10. They're 44 and 31 overall. The Phillies are on a cold streak. See, that's also what's so galling about the Mets, too. Is if they could just be 500, a couple games over, they'd still be right in the mix right now. I mean, the Phillies are only five games over. Washington's three games under. I mean, you know, I mean, look, the Braves look like a much better team than the Mets, to be, to be blunt. They do. I don't know that their starting pitching is better than the Mets. I don't think it is, at least potential-wise. Mets starting pitcher, but again, the Mets have undermined their their, their their strength by refusing to make defense a priority. So whatever. Um, and then you know the Marlins at twenty six and 46, 20 games under. Cubs are a Jekyll and Hyde team. They look great one week, then they look terrible the next. They're forty and thirty three. Mets play them for the next four games. That that that'll be just the panacea that Cubs need in Wrigley Field. The Brewers, they're a weird team. I mean that lineup is tremendous up and down. Guys hitting all over the place. Uh, pretty good bullpen, but starting pitching not very good. They're 40 and 34. Cardinals 38 and 35. You know, there's just something missing with that team too. I mean, the Mets lost three out of four to them over the last week, and they should have never. I mean, I should have been in, uh, Mets. You know, gave away two games in that series. The Reds. You know, every time you think the Reds might be turning the corner, like now they're 34 and 38. You know, but they were eight games under 500. But they could be like the, the NL version of the White Sox, one of those teams that down the stretch you don't want to play. And the Pirates have really fallen off a cliff. They're seven games under 500 now at 33 and 40. And you go out to the, AL, uh, the NL West, Dodgers, again, they look certainly like the cream of the crop in the National League at 15 and 25. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. I mean, the one weakness there might be the bullpen. Uh, and, you, again, you suspect that they'll do something about it. And if the Mets are smart, by the way, if a team like the Dodgers or somebody else wants an Edwin Diaz and they're willing to give you young major league ready talent for him, you do it. You do it. Because we talked about this constantly, the fickle nature of relief pitchers and closers in baseball. Except for a select few, 
over the years, these guys are up and down like yo-yos from year to year. It's like kickers in the NFL. There's about four or five elite kickers in the NFL, and the rest of them, one year they're great, and the next year they stink. Same thing in baseball with these relievers. And then, you know, look, the Rockies are five games over 500. They're 10 games out of first place. Padres are game over. Diamondbacks are game over. Giants are 10 under. I mean, the NL West, not very good. All right. Moving on. NBA draft. So, uh, as I've said many times, the NBA draft is one of the biggest wastes of time (laughs) in all of sports. Because the, the, the miss rate is so large, right, for the lottery picks, right, and all this stuff. I mean, you know, again, the whole philosophy in basketball to me is dumb. Teams much rather take, you know, 18 and 19-year-old European kids that never played on American soil over, you know, third or fourth-year juniors or seniors from big-time programs. Everything's all about upside and potential with the NBA draft, right? And so let's go and take a look at the last five NBA drafts. So we got, let's, let's go 2013. Let's see what the last, let's see what the 2013 NBA draft was. Who the picks were. Let's see if I can find this. Okay. Ready? First pick, Anthony Bennett by the Cleveland Cavaliers. One of the worst number one overall picks in the history of basketball. Feel bad for the kid, but it's just true. It's out of basketball. Number two, Victor Oladipo. Okay. Took him, what, four years to turn into a pretty good player? Third pick, Otto Porter. Nice player. Certainly not the third pick, worthy of the third pick in the draft. Fourth pick, Cody Zeller. A backup center extraordinaire. Fifth pick, Alex Len, a kid from Maryland. Again, another guy who played one year in college. 7-1, tons of potential. Has bounced around the NBA. Sixth pick in the draft, Nerlens Noel. is on his third team. He's done nothing. Seventh pick, Ben McLemore. I don't even know if he's in the NBA anymore. Eighth pick, Contavious Coldwell-Pope. You know, he's a gunner. He's on the Lakers now. He's okay, not great. Ninth pick, Trey Burke. He's been on, what, four teams since he came in the league, including the Knicks? Tenth pick, C.J. McCollum. So if you were going to redraft, based on all those players, Oladipo would go one, C.J. McCollum would go two, the, the, the shooting guard out of Lehigh that plays for the Blazers. The rest of those guys wouldn't even be first-round picks. Or if they would, they'd be way down second tier. Certainly not lottery picks. 11th pick, Michael Carter-Williams. He's on about his fifth team. 12th pick, Steven Adams. Been turned into a very good player. He'd be one of the top five if you read drafting. 13th pick, Kelly Olynyk for the Celtics. He's bounced around the league. He's a decent backup center. 14th pick, Shabazz Muhammad from Minnesota. I think he's out of the league. Didn't do much when he did. 15th pick, oh, look who it is, Giannis Antetokounmpo. The Greek freak. So if you're redrafting, he'd be the number one pick clearly. 
I think you would say Oladipo would be the second pick and McCollum would be the third pick. And you have McCollum was picked 10th and Antetokounmpo was picked 15th. That's your lottery. I mean, well, 15 isn't even a lottery. I think, what, 13 is the lottery? Is the cutoff or 14? I mean, I'm just looking at some, looking around some other guys here. Uh, Tim Hardaway Jr., the Knicks picked at 24. I'm trying to see how Rudy Gobert, 27th pick by Denver. Now he's on Utah. So he's turned into a really good player. Um, Dennis Schroeder was the 17th pick. Pretty good player. He's a good third guard, scoring guard. Uh... Let me see here. Anybody else late in the second round that turned into be anything of note? You know, a quality starter? No. So that that lottery in 2013, absolute joke, right? Horror show. Let's look at the 2014 NBA draft, shall we? So everybody's going to get all excited tonight. About these lottery picks, I guarantee you 50% of them are busts. Guaranteed. All right. 2014, Cleveland, Andrew Wiggins, except they traded him to Minnesota, right, to get Kevin Love. Andrew Wiggins has been a massive disappointment. Massive. Puts up numbers. Team never wins. It's been a massive disappointment so far. Jabari Parker, second pick, Milwaukee. Granted, he had a knee injury. It's been a massive disappointment. He's on his third or fourth team. Third, Joel Embiid. Took him, what, four years to finally play? Yes, he's a great player, but it took him forever. Fourth pick, Aaron Gordon. Eh. Eh. Really big, really athletic. Puts up numbers. Team never wins. It's not all his fault. But, I mean, were they the fourth pick in the draft? I don't think so. Fifth pick, Dante Exum, Utah. Point guard. Been a bust. Sixth pick, Boston took Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart's a nice player. He's a glue guy. Not worthy of the sixth pick in the draft. Lakers took Julius Randle with the seventh pick. He's maybe on the verge of turning into a star, but he's already on his third team. He's already on his third team. Sacramento took Nick Stauskas, eight. That's one of the worst picks ever. Charlotte took Noah Vonley, nine. That's the guy the Knicks had this year. He's on his third or fourth team. Orlando took Alfred Payton, ten. He's bounced around a league. Uh, Chicago took Doug McDermott, 11. Another guy's bounced around a league. He's a three-point specialist. He's a poor man's Kyle Korver. 12, Philly took Darius Saric. Eh, he's okay. Minnesota took Zach Levine, 13. He's probably the, the, the best player on this list. Other than Embiid, I'd say maybe Zach Levine is starting to turn around now that he's on Chicago. But again, he's on, I think, his second or third team. I mean, it's amazing how many of these lottery picks are never with the, or, or, or hardly any of them are even with their original teams. And now let's look around the rest of the league. Nurkic was the 16th pick. See, so the point is, is most of these lot, half, at least half these lottery picks are going to be busts, but there will be very good players drafted after these lottery picks. I mean, Nurkic would certainly be a lottery pick if you redid that draft. He'd be a top five pick based on how his career has gone. I'm trying to look around and see. Anybody else here from this draft? I and mean, Rodney Hood, eh, it wouldn't be a lottery pick. He's probably picked exactly where he should have been, 23rd. Uh, he's a nice player. I'm trying to see who else here. Joe Harris, 
eh, you know, he was a second-round pick. It's about what... Oh, Nikola Jokic. Okay. Second-round pick, Denver. Nurkic is now with Portland. We like to have fun with both those guys. There you go. So there's a second-round pick that would be a lottery pick if you were redoing this draft again today. And was this the... No, it wasn't. That was before. All right. So that's 2014. Let's take a look at 2015. with me for a second all right first pick carl anthony towns now look again he hasn't lived up to the hype but he's a massively talented player yes there's something wrong there with minnesota right they're cycling through coaches jimmy butler couldn't stand being there they probably got to get wiggins out of there i i could live with towns being the first pick d'angelo russell was the second pick We've talked about him at length during the season, right? It took him four years to figure it out in another team. But he's looking to be worthy of being a lottery pick. Third pick, Jaleel Okafor, disaster for Philly. He's on his third team already. He, he, he's he's a, a, a good low post score, does nothing else. Fourth pick was Porzingis, already on his second team. Fifth pick was Mario Hazonia, who the Knicks also had this year. He's been a bust. Willie Cauley-Stein, sixth pick was San Antonio, Sacramento. Certainly not worthy of a lottery pick. Moutier was the seventh pick, also on the Knicks. We know the Knicks love their former lottery picks. Certainly not worthy of the seventh pick. Stanley Johnson, eight to Detroit. Ugh, yuck. Frank Kaminsky, nine to Charlotte. Yuck. Justice Winslow, 10 to Miami. Yuck. Miles Turner, 11 to Indiana. All right, he's pretty good. And still might be, you know, he, he was very young when they took him. He's a 6'11", tall guy, can shoot. Trey Lyles, 12 to Utah. Devin Booker to Phoenix. All right, he scores a ton. Everyone loves him. The team never, you know, that the, the, the Phoenix is maybe the only team close to being the worst, as badly run as the Knicks are. Because their owner, Robert Sarver, is as big a joke as Dolan is. Yes, Booker scores a lot, hasn't amounted to much. Uh, so there's your lottery from, from that draft. I mean, again. And, you know, let's look around the league, see see guys who are drafted later. There, were there any steals in the second round in this draft? No, not really. Anyway, you get the point. The draft is, the NBA draft and the lottery in particular is in a massive crapshoot. So, look, the odds that, that it looks like the Knicks are going to draft R.J. Barrett and the odds of him being... Uh, uh, the Knicks hitting on him are 50-50 at best. Now, I will say this. He's 6'7", has an NBA body, wants to be here, right? He's not shying away from his father, played at St. John's. He wants to be here. He played for Duke, played in big-time pressure games, played very well when Zion was out with injury. It's tough playing. Sometimes it can be tough playing next to a, a superstar like a Zion Williamson. And he averaged like 22.7 rebounds and four assists or something like that. And he's 6'7". Now, look, he needs to shot, needs to improve. I mean, he's 19 years old. He needs to improve probably every facet of his game, but he's already come out and said that. He seems to have the right attitude. Unlike Kevin Knox, who has the worst attitude, the Knicks soon-to-be bust lottery pick from last year, this kid seems to have a great head on his shoulders and the right attitude. And he certainly has got ability. 
So while I don't expect him to come in and set the world on fire as rookie year, uh, I have no issues with the Knicks taking him with the third pick. John Morant's the guy I wanted, the point guard out of Murray State, but he's going to be gone at number two. So, you know, and I don't know enough about Darius Garland, the point guard out of Vanderbilt. I mean, he played five games last year in college. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've never seen the kid play. A lot of people like him. I don't know anything about him. R.J. Barrett I've seen play. I can see that the kid is talented. So, we'll see. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, you can check us out on wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud. Check us out on Twitter at JamalAboutSport and OS. Website JamalAboutSports.com. The uh, Facebook page is JamalAboutSports. Thanks for listening. Until next time, peace out.